0: Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm joined on the podcast today by James Hines, author of the new novel Sparrow that was just published in the U.S. The novel was recently a Times bestseller in the U.K. Emma Donahue wrote about the novel. Utterly engrossing, vivid, and honest, this coming-of-age story reaches across millennia to grab us by the throat. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your novel, Sparrow, how would you describe the novel?
1: Well, um, Sparrow is intended to be, if I live long enough and don't lose my nerve, the first of four novels, first of a series of four novels, which will make up the fictional memoir of a Roman slave in the late fourth and into the mid fifth century of the common era. Um, And the frame of the story is that he's an old man looking back at his life as a slave, and he's living in an abandoned town in Roman Britain after the, after the Romans have abandoned the province. And Sparrow, the first book in this series, tells the story of his earliest life, from his earliest memories um, to roughly the age of 10 or 12, when he was growing up as a slave in a brothel in a city in Spain called Cartago Nova, which is now the modern day city of Cartagena, Spain, which is on the Mediterranean coast of Spain. And he does not know where he was born. He does not know when he was born. He does not know who his parents are. He does not know his ethnicity even. He knows roughly that he's from somewhere in the Eastern Mediterranean. And his quote unquote family, sort of his intention, what they call an intentional family these days, Consists of the enslaved women who work as prostitutes, or or what the Romans called wolves, in the brothel where he's living, and uh, two of the women in particular, the wolf Euterpe, uh, who's from North Africa, and the brothel's cook Focaria, who is from uh, the Roman province of Britain, become his his in effect his mothers, or the closest thing he'll ever know to a mother, and so uh, it's the story of him growing up in this kind of really, really difficult circumstance where he starts out as a kitchen slave and ends up working as a, as a sex worker himself later in the book. Uh, and it's, it's basically an attempt to, to show how this boy and these women struggle to find meaning and maybe even love, um, in a brutally unjust world. Um, and another thing I wanted to do was that there's a lot of, there's a lot of Historical fiction about ancient Rome that focuses on um, famous Romans such as Cicero or Caesar um, or, you know, all the famous names you can think of. Or you know famous events in Roman history, such as the Roman Civil Wars, the collapse of the Republic, uh, the eruption of Vesuvius that destroyed Pompeii, and so on. Or about spectacular features of Roman life, such as gladiatorial combat and things like that. And I wanted to see if I could write a novel that was just about the life of ordinary Romans on the street and make that interesting and make it compelling. And the third thing I wanted to accomplish is, like I say, this is told from the point of view of a slave. And unlike... American slavery where you've got several hundred slave narratives by formerly enslaved people such as Frederick Douglass or Harriet Jacobs who were able to write in great detail and with great passion and insight about what their experience as slaves was like there are no surviving slave narratives like that from the ancient from the ancient Roman world anyway at least that I know of and I didn't really see any or much fiction that was told from that point of view so i thought it would be an important thing to do and and sort of an interesting thing to do creatively so that's that was what the what the what the impetus behind the book was
0: and and do you remember the original idea that that led you to writing sparrow and having this uh <coughs> having this planned uh, series well it it's
1: it's a it's a long story which I will tell the shortest possible okay. version of because I'm fine. Uh, it it uh, it goes back 45 years to when I was oh. in my early 20s and I always I always loved historical fiction as a kid and in my uh, early 20s I sort of rediscovered it and started reading very serious historical fiction that would had been published in the early 70s and I decided I wanted to write a series of historical novels again I wanted to write four books. Uh, about the about a Celtic family that lived through the Roman occupation of Britain, and that lasted about 400 years. And each one of these books would take the family through a different century. So the you know, ending with the with the withdrawal of the Romans in the fourth book and the collapse of Roman Britain. And I was in my early twenties. I had no idea what I was doing. And and it's it's a long, complicated story, which I won't go into. But I I eventually gave up on that book because. A, I didn't have the skills for it, and B, it just just seemed too daunting to me. And in the meantime, over the course of my career, I wrote five other books, none of which were historical fiction. Uh, And then after I finished my most recent book, Next, which came out in 2010, uh, for some reason I decided I wanted to try something completely different than I'd done before, because my earlier books, I'd written some academic satires, I'd written a political thriller about the Irish Republican Army. Uh, stuff like that. I decided I'd go back to that historical novel idea I had in my early 20s. Uh, and this time I would boil it down to one book. I would just—I was just going to do the final book, just about the collapse of Roman Britain or the aftermath of the collapse of Roman Britain. And, and very simply, the story was about a group of Irish Christian heretics who'd been driven out of Ireland by the Orthodox Christianity of the time in the fifth century, namely St. Patrick. Um, and they ended up in a abandoned Roman town in Britain called Kaleva, uh, which is actually a real place. Um, and when they get there, they discover an old man living there who claims to be an old Roman senator or general, an elite Roman anyway who who decided to stay behind after the empire lift And the big twist at the end of the book was going to be when they discovered that he wasn't any of these things. He wasn't an elite Roman. He was just a slave who got left behind. And at some point in the book, I decided I needed to know this guy's backstory. Um, and I did something that I had never done before as a writer. All my books have been written um in the order in which the in which the reader reads them. I never jump around. Mm-hmm. But this time I decided I would write this guy's backstory out of order, just so I'd know where he was at and who he was. And I thought it would be maybe 30 or 40 pages. And I looked up one day and I'd written 150 pages, and I hadn't gotten them behind the edge of like eight. <laughs> and I realized, A, this Mostly what I realized is this is the story. This is more interesting than the the Irish family and the post-apocalyptic aftermath of Roman Britain. And the more I did research into Roman slavery, that's when I discovered the thing I mentioned earlier, that there were no surviving memoirs by Roman slaves. And I thought, well, this is way more interesting than my original idea. I'll do this. And that's the book that became Sparrow.
0: Well, I, I'm I'm curious. I mean, given what you've said about the lack of slave narratives, how did you tackle the research for this novel? If there if there are not slave narratives, are there scholars who have studied the the societal structure and how slaves were treated? Yeah, yeah,
1: and and that's again what made the the book interesting for me because it wasn't you know like I like I said already you know a lot of historical fiction and a lot of good historical fiction is about you know elite Roman history that we all know, you know, the collapse of the Republic and the rise of the empire and all that stuff. So there's a lot of books about that, but in the last 30 or 40 years, especially there've been a lot of younger uh, scholars who have focused on, on the lives of ordinary Romans and the lives of slaves. And there's a rich uh, scholarly corpus of work about, about slavery in particular And there was one book in particular by a a scholar named Sandra Jochelle, which was, I think, think called Slavery in the Roman World or something, which is one of the first books I read. And it was written for a popular audience. It's very, very compelling, very detailed, very passionate, too. Um, She actually gets angry about it, which is kind of bracing, because a lot of scholars can be very cold-blooded about this stuff. And I got all sorts of details from that. And then, of course, I read an awful lot of Roman social history, uh, not just about slavery but also about how ordinary romans lived their lives what their sexual morality was how they saw gender how they saw you know uh, you know how they made bread how they did their laundry all that kind of stuff and that all kind of factored into the book so that was the kind of research i did it was not the usual research you do about rome for a you know i wasn't researching what battles Caesar fought or what sure. Cicero did in the Roman Senate. Instead, I was trying to find out. I did an awful lot of reading about Roman slavery in particular, but also about Roman the, or, the lives of ordinary Romans in general.
0: Well, I, I'm wondering about the the research and kind of your, your writing process. Um, given what you just said about writing the 150 pages and looking up, so did you um, – s- after you wrote that chunk, did you start reading these books on slavery and then kind of weaving in some of the things that you discovered?
1: Yeah, that's that's one of the things I discovered early on. Um, I had tried to write historical fiction before, as I said, once in my early 20s and then again in my 30s with a novel I worked on for a few years and gave up on. And with the one I did in my 30s, I took the position that you needed to do all the research first and then write the book. And... That was a mistake because when I started writing the book, I was basically just emptying my notebooks into the page mm-hmm. and I got pages and pages and pages of world building and no story. Right. So the, the thing I wanted to avoid this time around was that. I didn't want it just to be research. I, wanted, I re- kept telling myself, this is a story first, the history comes second. So the, the trick I learned, and I, I'm not saying this would work for anybody, but it absolutely worked for me, was to start writing right away before I knew what I was doing and do the research at the same time. And that ended up sort of setting up this really wonderful feedback loop where I didn't know what I needed to research until I actually started creating scenes and characters. So that, for example, you know, he early in his life uh, before – You know, when he's just a kitchen slave, my character Jacob is sent out to run errands to do the shopping for the brothel, buy the food, because it's also a tavern. Um, And he goes to a bakery. Well, I didn't know anything about how a Roman bakery worked, so I would stop writing and I would research how a Roman bakery worked, and then I'd write the scene again. Um, And then the research also gave me ideas for scenes, substantive scenes that moved the story along that I never would have thought of if I hadn't done the research. So one of the things I did for research was I went to I already decided I wanted the the book to be set in that city of Cartago Nova in Spain. So I went there. I went to Cartagena in 2016 and spent several days there. And one of the places I went was this wonderful municipal museum they have in Cartagena that's literally built around and over the old Roman cemetery in the town. So that at the center of the museum, there's this big covered courtyard where you can stand on the balcony and look down on these ancient Roman graves and if I hadn't, and as a result of that, there's a major scene in the book that takes place in that graveyard. I already knew that particular character was going to die, but I wasn't planning on showing that guy's funeral. But having seen the graveyard, I thought this is just too good not to use. So I, I wrote this whole, it's like a 15 or 20 page scene, just because I happened to have done that research. So like I say, the, the writing as I did the research meant that Doing the writing told me what I needed to research, and then doing the research gave me ideas for story and character that I wouldn't have come up on my own. So it was it was a really productive process for me.
0: That's great. Well, I wonder if we can circle back a little bit. Can you tell us about your original writing journey that led you to writing your first stories and your first novel? Um,
1: I, I wanted to be a writer ever since I was a teenager. I, I'd read a lot of science fiction, so I wrote a lot of short stories that were you know, basically ripoffs of, of the science fiction writers I loved when I was in high school, like Arthur C. Clarke or Ray Bradbury or Isaac Asimov and so on. Um, and, I, and I won a creative writing award in college when I went to the University of Michigan, something called the Hopwood Award, and that kind of egged me on further. And my first published novel, I mean, I'd, like I say, I'd attempted a, the historical novel I also attempted another novel that was sort of the obligatory semi-autobiographical novel about a sensitive kid growing up in a small town in Michigan like me. Um, But my first published novel, which was a political thriller about the Irish Republican Army, actually was sort of a a direct result of my failed attempt to write that historical novel in my early 20s. Because in 1982, when I was 27, I quit my job. And went to Britain for three months to research that historical novel about Roman Britain and visited a lot of Roman ruins in Britain, like Hadrian's Wall and that city I mentioned earlier, Kaleva. And while I was in Britain in 1982, there was an election going on in Northern Ireland. And that was the height of the troubles, the height of the conflict between the Irish Republican Army and the British government. And I kept reading about this stuff in the the newspaper every day while I was staying in youth hostels. And I suddenly got this, while I was at Hadrian's Wall, I can remember the moment. It was like, a, like an epiphany from a James Joyce short story. I thought, well, this historical novel is going to take me forever to write. I need a way to make a living. So I'll write a thriller about Northern Ireland. I'll write it really fast in a year. And I'll make a lot of money. And I'll use that money to write my historical novel. And you know, it was a kind of a crazy idea for a young writer who had no idea how the world worked And didn't know how to write a novel yet because I hadn't written one. But that's what I did as I started to work on that book. So the book that was supposed to take me a year and just be a knockoff ended up taking me five years because that's how I taught myself how to write a novel was by writing that book over and over again. I did four complete drafts in longhand and typed them all up on an old electric typewriter. This is long before computers. And that was my first published novel, The Wild Colonial Boy. Um, And I ended up taking it way more seriously than I thought it was. And by that point, the historical novel was way behind in the rearview mirror. And I went on and wrote four other books after that that had nothing to do with historical fiction.
0: Well, I know that you taught a great courses course about fiction writing, and I'll, I'll include a link to that in the show notes for people who want to look at that. Um, and I know this is a broad question given your teaching, but what writing advice would you offer for those who are writing their own stories or novels?
1: Um, it's very simple and it's probably something every writer who gets asked this question thinks of immediately, which is just read everything and, and just start writing. Um, you learn to write by writing. You learn to write by doing it. So find some time every day to do it, or find as often as you can to do it. And read everything you like. Um, the advice I, back when I used to teach in college—I don't teach in universities anymore—but back when I used to, I I would sometimes tell tell students, and I and I kind of meant this, um, that um, don't don't be too overly concerned about reading what you think you ought to read Mm -hmm. or reading what people tell you to read. If you start something and you don't like it, don't finish it. Don't waste your time. You're going to learn more from the books you really want to read, I think. Um, But apart from that, the main thing is just, just start writing, even if you don't think you know what you're doing. And the chances are you probably don't know what you're doing. I certainly didn't when I was starting. Sure. Um, but I remember years ago, like I mentioned, I, I won something called the Hopwood Award at the University of Michigan. And there's a little there's a little uh, writing center at Michigan called the Hopwood Room, where they keep all the books by people who've won the award <laughs> over the years. And I was sitting in there once as a young, I was still an undergraduate at this point, and I don't think I'd won the award yet. And I remember hearing a, another young student in there, a young woman talking to somebody about her writing career. And she said she didn't want to start writing until she got her worldview in order. And I remember even even at the age of 19 or 20 or however old I was when I heard her say this, I just thought, that's, that's wrong. That's just wrong. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get your worldview and then start writing. You get your worldview by writing. That's how you, that's how you learn what you think about the world is by writing. And so that's what I do. I just start writing and keep writing.
0: So are you working on the next book in your series now? I
1: am. I'm about 50,000 words into it. I was working on it yesterday. And after I finish talking to you, I will go back to work on it.
0: That's great. Do you have a projected publication date?
1: Uh, honestly, when it's finished. Yeah. That's the best I can tell you. Right. Um, the first book took me 10 years to write. I'm hoping this one will only take me a couple because I've I've already done much of the research. There's still sure. a lot of research because it's a in the second book it's a different milieu, he's got a whole new cast of characters, it's a different sort of situation. So I still have a fair amount of research to do, but I've done the basic, I already have a firm grasp on the the late Roman world, on the Roman world of the 4th and 5th century, so I don't have to reproduce that. So hopefully it'll go faster this time. And plus, you know, while I was writing the first book, I had plenty of time to think about what's going to be the story in the next three books. So I kind of know where I'm headed.
0: Well, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um...
1: Having rediscovered historical fiction late in life, um, I read a lot of it. And so I thought I'd mention just three that I really, really enjoyed in the last year or so. And One's a book called The Manning Tree Witches by a British poet named A.K. Blakemore. I think it's her first novel. And it's about uh, an actual witch hunt, a historical witch hunt in in a village called Manning Tree in, I think, Norfolk in England in the mid 17th century. And it's written from the point of view of the women who are accused of being witches. And it's just, it's just a fantastic book. Um, another book I really enjoyed was a book that, alas, is not published, at least not yet in the United States, but I it looked so interesting to me. I ordered a copy from Britain. It's called Fox Ash, F-O-X-A-S-H, by a writer named Kate Worsley. And the best way – I don't want to give much of it away because half the fun of it is discovering what happens in the book. But it's basically as if Daphne du Maurier had written Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> um, and the third one I'll mention, be, not just because I feel obligated because she wrote me such a lovely blurb, but I really do love Emma Donahue's historical fiction. And she's got a new one out, which I haven't read yet. But the one I want to mention is the one that she published last year is a book called Haven. Which is about the about three Irish monks in the ninth century who settled the island of Skellig Michael, which is this barely habitable little rock off the barely habitable little rock off the coast of the western coast of Ireland and found a monastery there and It's a short book it's only three characters with a very limited uh setting, just this island, but she manages to make this absolutely thrilling story out of it. And it's just a masterclass in storytelling.
0: That's great. Those are great recommendations. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your new novel, Sparrow?
1: Well, there's my website, jameshines.com, J-A-M-E-S-H-Y-N-E-S, uh, all one word, all run together. And I'm still, at least for the time being, on the on the social media site formerly known as Twitter. Uh, until until certain owners of Twitter make it uninhabitable, I'm going to stick around to, on there for, uh, for the, to the bitter end. So I'm at Twitter at, at James Hines or X or whatever they call it.
0: Right. Well, that's great. Well, again, we've been speaking to James Hines, author of the new novel Sparrow that was just published in the US. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Jim, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Thanks for having me. Absolutely.